Hello, and welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory on the Rocks, with Katie and Allie. Normally, just be Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about famous or should be more famous in history. (laughs) We have a very special guest here with us today, Charlotte Gray. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. We're so excited to have you. Charlotte is an award-winning author and historian who has written many books, many focusing on Canadian history. But today she is here to talk to us about her new book, Passionate Mothers, Powerful Sons, that actually releases the same day this episode comes out, September 12th. So you can buy it right this (laughs) second, right this second. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I've been a writer all my life. I've written 12 books and I love writing about women's history. You know, there's lots of history books, but about 99% of them are about men. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's really good fun to find out what the other half of the human race was doing. And particularly because it actually gives you insights into social history. There's lots of political and economic history around But what were the women doing? What were their lives like? What influence did they have? So I've spent a lot of my time writing about those subjects. You can probably hear I'm originally English. I've lived in Canada for 40 years. I uh, go back to England frequently, and I'm constantly conscious that uh, it's a tough place to live, London, these days. But uh, I I feel pretty bicultural, mid-Atlantic. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we're so excited to get into this book. Um, but as usual, we have a cocktail to introduce in honor of your book. Uh, so this is obviously called Passionate Mothers, Powerful Sons. And I based this off of a New York sour, since even though these are very important men from the UK or mothers who had very powerful sons <laughs> from the UK and um, and America, they were both born in New York City, which I thought was very fascinating. So I did a New, a New York sour. So that is bourbon, lemon juice, and I substituted passion fruit, simple syrup as an homage to the ladies and their name. <laughs> uh, and then I pour red wine over top of it. So it's kind of a layered drink with red on the top and orange at the bottom. <laughs> that looks that looks absolutely luscious. I can't <laughs> wait to go and mix it for myself. Well, well cheers. Yes. <laughs> mm. So before we dive into your book, we always like to set the scene for our listeners. So can we talk a little bit about your book focuses on two women who are mothers of very famous men, but they are both born in New York City in the same year. So what is life like for women in New York City at the time of their birth? Well, for those two women, Sarah and uh, Jenny, life was pretty sweet because they were born into the absolutely uh, the elite. They had wealthy families. They had uh, servants, hot and cold running servants. They lived in big houses. They didn't know anything about the sort of struggles of the immigrants in uh, the Lower East Side. They were busy being dressed up in pretty little white dresses and learning music and songs and going to little dance classes. Their parents were wealthy, but although they were born in this very sort of small elite, what's really striking is that Sarah was born into old money. family was incredibly dignified and posh and they were just obsessed with manners and lineage whereas 
Jenny was born into new money and her father was a racy entrepreneur who loved driving through down Fifth Avenue in a carriage and horses. <laughs> I love that. So if people haven't gathered already, we're talking about Jenny Jerome Churchill, mother of Winston Churchill, and Sarah Delano Roosevelt, mother of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So two very mm-hmm. influential men who, I mean, impacted our personal history. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit, bit about how these women encourage their son's success? And did they have different methods of accomplishing this? One of the joys of writing the book was that the women are so different. Mm-hmm. They're born in with the same sort of strata of society. They're born with the same expectations of what their lives were going to be like. They went in completely different directions. And this really showed in their parenting styles. Jenny moved from New York to Paris and then to London. She marries the son of a duke. She loves partying. She has a son who she doesn't spend a lot of time with for the first 20 years of his life because she passes him off to a nanny and then to boarding schools, which is what sort of British toffs did in those days. And uh, she really only starts paying attention to Winston when her husband dies. Huge difference with Sarah Delano Roosevelt, who was just devoted to Franklin from a very early age. She's what we'd call a helicopter parent. And she wept when she had to cut his baby curls off and she wouldn't let him go to school with other children. And she kept him back from home. When he did finally go to boarding school, a very posh establishment place, she demanded a letter every every two or three days. And if it didn't arrive, she'd call the head of the school and say, is he sick? Is he ill? So she sort of hovered pretty close to Franklin the whole time. Whereas Jenny Winston said about his mother, she twinkled for me like a distant star. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting too, because I remember when we did Eleanor Roosevelt's story, she had quite a, uh, quite a relationship with her mother-in-law who was still very connected, helicoptering her son. (laughs) Well, in fact, actually, I think Sarah's had a bad press because Eleanor was so dependent when she first married Franklin. She Mm -hmm. and Franklin were very young when they got married. And uh, she had had a wretched childhood herself. She didn't know how to do a thing. She relied on Sarah for so much. Mm -hmm. And Sarah was more than happy to step in. And then after both Sarah and Franklin were dead, Eleanor was having this fantastic life as a sort of social justice advocate and really came into her own. And in retrospect, she sort of thought, why did I let my mother-in-law boss me around? And she just got meaner and meaner about Sarah. Although it was Sarah who held the family together and looked after the children and allowed Eleanor to have her life. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I think is interesting about both of these women is that they also went through widowhood. They lost their husbands at, you know, different times, but it seemed like they had different approaches to widowhood. <laughs> it seemed I'll like say. Jenny kind of went on and got married a couple more times, had some maybe high profile love interests. And I don't think Sarah really ever moved on. So did that make a difference in how they were viewed by the public? Absolutely. I mean, Jenny, there was always scandal around Jenny, although she was actually incredibly popular. People loved her because she was so lively, but she was um, so such fun she had affairs she had an affair probably with the prince of wales um 
while she was still married before Lord Randolph died. And she had several love affairs after that. And the men kept getting younger and younger. (laughs) Both her second and her third husband were the same age as Winston. And she, um, she was just so full of joie de vivre. The trouble is that, you know, that has tended to overshadow her reputation. And Mm -hmm. she's seen as as now as somebody who really, uh, that's, that's the only way she's remembered. She did lots of other things too, including, uh, organizing a hospital ship, organizing uh, huge fundraising for a national theater. She was full of initiative and energy. Sarah, in contrast, you know, she was widowed. She was grief struck. And then she stuck so close to Franklin. She had no interest in men half her age or twice her age. She was only interested in her son. Mm-hmm. And so she she was actually the an intrusive mother-in-law, perhaps, but also she continued to be a kind of security blanket for Franklin Roosevelt long after he actually needed one. Mm. And as you were writing the book, did you find that there was an aspect or aspects of each of these women that was like, that is my favorite thing about her? Yes. I tell you what it is. With Jenny, it's her wit. She is really funny. I mean, just to give you a really macabre example, at the end of her life, she has a terrible um fall breaks her ankle gets gangrene has to have her left leg amputated and she says well i'll just have to put my best foot forward <laughs> and and there are so many lines like that that i could quote with her with with sarah what i loved was just her loyalty her 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 whatever franklin wanted to do she always supported him so she didn't want him to go into politics she wanted him to be a country gentleman like his father but when he, it was obvious that even after he'd had polio and had and could barely walk, he was going to stay in public life, which was unthinkable back then. I mean, he really was a, um, uh, he opened the door to disabled people having full lives. Um, she, when she realized she was never going to be able to divert him back to the Hudson Valley, she, she was with him every step of the way and she, she loved him. Both those women gave such senses of destiny to their sons. And that was like sort of giving them suits of armor as they sort of ascend the political ranks. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a little bit earlier, um, Jenny starting the, the the hospital ship and everything like that. And are there other things that they accomplished in their own right that really impressed you for, you know, upper-class women of the time. I loved the fact that uh, Jenny established a literary journal that she was um, quite devoted to. It was a magazine, and she always called it her Maggie. Maggie's coming with me this weekend, she would say. (laughs) It showed great initiative because it wasn't the kind of thing that most of her sort of English compatriots did. And with Sarah, I loved her sense of responsibility for all the people who worked for her. I mean, she was very old fashioned, but she really did have a sense of noblesse oblige. And she looked after the people who worked on her quite massive estate. She also would swan down to the White House when uh, her son and daughter-in-law and all the children were living there because they were there in Washington for a long time. And she would swan down, the White House staff used to call her the Duchess, and take her own tea because... She thought that the supplies at the White House were just terrible. (laughs) She actually paid all the household expenses in the White House. 
when Franklin was there, because the president at that stage did not get a massive salary. So I think the nature versus nurture, nurture conversation is important here. Or would these men be able to do this, the amazing things they did without the nurture of their mothers? Or could somebody else step in and have done the same thing? That, now, that's a real chicken and egg problem. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not even going to go there in the sense that you want me to say it was definitely the mothers. Because, no, of course, the men had their, very much their own personalities and they were very strong willed themselves. What I will say, though, is that the way that the mother son relationship worked in both instances influenced the way that the son subsequently behaved in, in other relationships so that. There's Jenny, who's distant, and Winston, who's very needy, emotionally needy. He was an incredibly emotional man. He was always bursting into tears you know, <laughs> throughout his long life. But he wants Jenny's attention. So he's sort of, there are sort of charming temper or temper tantrums or begging for attention and um, sort of furious treatment of people who don't agree with him. And that's the way he learned to behave with Jenny to catch her attention. Sarah, who's on Franklin's case the whole time, and he doesn't want her quite so close. He learns to be absolutely charming and keep her at arm's length. Mm -hmm. And so that uh, she never quite realized what was happening as uh, he managed to say, you know, let's do this. And then, yes, I am going off on a cruise with three other guys to have some fun but you know I'll miss you all the time and then suddenly she realizes that he's made her feel really good and he's disappeared and that was the way he treated his cabinet mm -hmm. now did Jenny smoke 10 cigars a day or a thousand yeah. cigars a day too or just Winston <laughs> that's Winston Winston is the one who always sort of started the day with a glass of champagne I mean when he went to stay in the White House when Franklin and Eleanor lived there Eleanor was actually quite prim and, and she certainly didn't drink. She was horrified at uh, how much Winston Churchill drank. And even, you know, though one of the rituals at the White House was FDR's cocktail hour when he would mix martinis for everybody. But for every one martini that Franklin drank, drank Winston would pour the martinis, which he didn't like, quietly into sort of potted plants and reach for the whiskey. <laughs> Oh, now, obviously, that means that um, Sarah has met Winston, but did the two women ever meet? Did they ever get to be in the same room together and kind of sit with the fact that they are the mothers of these two great men? Oh, you know, my my greatest frustration with this book was that I know they must have been in the same room at different stages in their life in New York when they were little girls sort of later on in Paris, <clears throat> later on sort of at state um, various occasions, but I could never find any connection. Ooh. And I remember though, I spent some time in the Churchill archives in Cambridge, England, in the, at the University of Cambridge. And I asked the wonderful uh, chief archivist who runs the Churchill archives there, did they ever meet? And he said, you know, when Winston Churchill was meeting Franklin Roosevelt at the beginning of the war in 1941, he desperately wanted Americans to come, America to come into the war. He desperately wanted to make great friends with Franklin Roosevelt. And he made his staff just go through all his papers and all his mother's papers looking for that connection. So he could say, ha ha, our mothers were great friends. So we'll be <laughs> friends. 
And Alan Packwood, the archivist, said, look, if he couldn't find it, (laughs) it doesn't exist in the papers. But he, too, agreed it was probably happened. Mm -hmm. So we started the show with you telling us how much you love writing about women's history. When did you come across these two? Like, what was it that sparked your interest to write about these women? Well, I have to admit, it was my editor who said, you know, Charlotte, your first book, and this book was very successful um, about 30 years ago, was about the mother of a Canadian prime minister. And it was a particularly weird mother-son relationship because the son kept trying to after his mother died, he was contacting her through seances. So it was a wonderful book to write. He kept very good records of seances with his mother. How <laughs> weird is that? But I also then realized I loved writing about women. And my editor said to me, you love writing about women. You also like writing about politics. So what about these two women? Because she discovered they were born in the same year. And she just said that to me. And I thought, whoa, that's crazy. How could, you know, this great statesman who shaped the course of the Second World War, who really shaped the modern world to some extent, how could their mothers have been sort of born in the same strawberry patch? That's that's just a lovely coincidence. And I took it from there. That's what I decided. My My biggest challenge, though, was to sort of keep these two biographies on parallel tracks and keep readers thinking, oh, that's how she handled childbirth. But how did how did the other one handle childbirth? And issues like that, so that uh, you could constantly see the different choices facing women, even when lives were very restricted. Mm-hmm. What kind of conversations do you want to come out of people reading this book? I think there are two main conversations I'd like them to have. One is why do biographers always underestimate the power of mothers and the influence of mothers? And I think that's really pretty important, particularly because these two women have been denigrated. The other one is let's have more women's history, whether it's women who've broken through the glass ceiling, you know, the Hillary Clintons of this world, or the women who have accepted life, the lives they've been given and made the best of them and left us really interesting pictures of what society was like. You know, I think we we get hung up on sort of big man politics, and we don't learn enough about uh, how far women have come and how far we have to go. Mm-hmm. So as you were researching, were there any specific documents that you got to see, journals, diaries, letters, or was it different types of primary sources? Well, my frustration was I was driving, I was writing this through COVID. And wow. so there were lockdowns. And like many historians, my great joy is going into archive, archive, archives, because that's like a treasure hunt. You never know what you're going to find. You're never going to f- sort of sure if you... You're going to just sort of stumble on a letter that reveals a secret. And I couldn't do that this time. I couldn't travel. I was sort of practically stuck in my garret and with my um, keyboard and a sort of internet access to secondhand books, which I spent a huge amount of money acquiring because I couldn't get into libraries. So I didn't have that thrill of archives uh, with this book until the very end. And then I managed to get to the Churchill Archives in Cambridge and the Roosevelt Archives in the Hudson Valley. (laughs) And 
in both cases, I was looking at letters. I was looking at um, albums, photo albums. I remember being overjoyed when I discovered in Cambridge the list of books that were in Jenny Churchill's library and realizing, whoa, she was pretty smart. She was reading a lot of good novels and philosophy and books in French. That was impressive. And with uh, Sarah, I was reading her household accounts. The plus of writing about famous families like the Churchills and the Roosevelts is that a lot of the correspondence had already been published. So I was able to use the secondary sources to draw on. It was a bit frustrating because I like getting my own hands dirty, not, yeah. not just reading you know, what other people have found at the coalface, but mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot available. Mm -hmm. And another question we like to ask people, which obviously is a lot of the authors we're interviewing did write their books during COVID. So this <laughs> is a little bit funny, but did you get to travel to any of their personal residences or some of the places they may have gone to in their lifetime, like when you went over to Cambridge, were you able to go any place that Jenny may have been? When I went to England to see the archives in Cambridge, I went, of course, to Blenheim as well, Blenheim Palace, this massive and frankly, hugely uncomfortable stately home outside Oxford, where Lord Randolph Churchill, Jenny's husband, had grown up and where Jenny spent long portions of her married life and in fact gave birth to Winston, I saw the room that she had gone into labor in supposedly seven weeks early. It was said that um, Winston Churchill was premature because he was born only seven months after the wedding. Not sure what to do about that. <laughs> um, so I did see that. And then I also, of course, admired uh, the house where, Je where Jenny, Jenny's parents had lived in New York, in Brooklyn, actually. And then for Sarah, I went two or three times to Hyde Park, to Springwood, this marvelous house that sort of grew as Franklin's importance grew. But it was the house that Sarah Delano had gone to with her new husband, James Roosevelt. It, it was his house. She went there after the, her marriage and she never left. And it's now the most wonderful place to visit. It's just full of Roosevelt memorabilia. Plus, it's just near the Roosevelt Presidential Library. So I enjoyed that. I mean, you go to these places and all you can think of is, oh, my God, the beds are so small and so uncomfortable. <laughs> I also went to the Roosevelt's summer cottage after I'd finished the book. I went this summer, which is in just off off the coast of Maine and in Canada, in fact, in New Brunswick. And there, there's this cottage, so-called cottage, 18 bedrooms. Uh, but there, you can think, you just think, this is one of the most uncomfortable places I've ever been to. You can, you, you realize on a hot day, it would have been lovely. On a cold, windy day, and I was there in July, and it was a cold, windy, wet day. It was actually not a lot of fun. Mm. So before we tell everybody where we can find you and where you can find all of your books, I'm just curious, do you have any really amazing Canadian women that you think everybody should know more about and they just don't know a lot about them? Whoa, so many. <laughs> any one, I'll tell you one, though, that I think you should keep your eye on. Our current Governor General. Now, the Canadian Governor General represents the Queen. Mm. 
And so she's, it's very ceremonial. But the woman who holds this office right now and has, will have the job for five years is called Mary Simon. And she's an Inuit, what used to be called an Eskimo. She was a incredibly powerful um, politician on behalf of her people, the Inuit people from the far north. She's determined that uh, Canada is going to reorient itself to take more account of its northern people. She's quietly spoken. She's got great presence. And you know when you're in her presence that she is a formidable person. So I just, I, I had to interview her for something the other day and I just thought, whoa, I'd like to write her biography. <laughs> oh, perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is so great. I can't wait for people to go out and get this book. You know, as we were talking, I was thinking what a great resource this is for any person who is raising children, especially because, you know, I think we all have a lot of self-judgment when it comes to how we raise our children. And you're always thinking that, like, am I doing too much? Am I doing too little? Mm -hmm. And you have two women who went completely opposite directions and still ended up with some pretty great kids. So (laughs) I I think that is actually a really important message of the book. You know, that in, it's the nature and nurture thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, there is no cookie-cutter model for the mother-son bond. Mm-hmm. No, there's not. So I'm hoping that people can just take a lot out of this book um, and just enjoy it as much as we have. And we just love talking to you. So can you tell people, where can they get this book today? <laughs> well, it's on sale. It should be. In your local bookstore, go to your independence bookstore or go online. It's there. And uh, I would love you to buy it. I think you'll have fun reading it. (laughs) I think so, too. And uh, where can people find you and your other books? Are you on social media? I'm on social media. My website is www.charlottegray.ca. I'm on Facebook. I'm on what used to be Twitter, I've still not learned to call it X. I'm on Instagram sometimes, LinkedIn sometimes. Um, but I have to say, like most writers, I'm actually mainly in my study writing books. <laughs> awesome. The book should be everywhere by now. So thank you. Perfect. Oh, well, it has been such a wonderful pleasure to meet you and to get to talk to you and have you share the stories of these wonderful women. Thank you very much for inviting me on the program. Now I've got to go and make the cocktail. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.